Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Genesis chapter 19, starting with verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. And there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Good morning. My name is Dale Williams. I'm one of the preaching pastors and pastor of congregational care here at LifePoint Church. Today, we look at the end of the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a terrible story, as a matter of fact. And I think I should make the disclaimer that many journalists have made when they report distressing news stories. Viewer discretion is advised, because you may find some of these scenes and lessons very distressful. Just a brief review to bring us up to speed. The story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah begins in Genesis chapter 18, when God comes with two of his angels and visits Abraham, who is living in Mamre near Hebron in the land of Palestine. God promises Abraham that his 90-year-old wife, Sarah, will, be, will have a son, and through him, God will fill his covenant 
promise with Abraham to make him the father of his chosen people. And through him, he will bless all of the nations of the earth. Now, Sarah laughs at this impossible promise, but God reminds them that he is the God of the impossible. His name is El Shaddai, which means the Almighty One. And with God, all things are possible. Now, as God and his two angels take their leave of Abraham, they share with him that they are going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is immediately concerned because his nephew Lot now lives in Sodom. And so Abraham boldly steps in front of God and intercedes for the life of his nephew Lot. Abraham asks if God will destroy a wicked city even if there are ten righteous people in the city. In other words, Abraham is asking God, is your judgment and punishment of wicked people indiscriminately given so that the righteous ones are destroyed as collateral damage along with the wicked? But God assures Abraham that his punishment of wickedness is not indiscriminate. He will not destroy Sodom if there are ten righteous people found in it. And we learn from this story that God's justice and judgment are always fair and equitable. It is not applied haphazardly or with partiality. His justice is always fair and appropriate. So the two angels continue on their journey to Sodom. And last week we studied in Genesis 19, verses 1 through 22, how reluctant Lot was to leave that city. The angels literally had to take him by the hand with his wife and two daughters and lead them, drag them out of the city in order to save them. There were not ten righteous people in the city after all. Only Lot and his family. And so the angels rescue Lot and his family, but they proceed to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> we see clearly that God's judgment is always tempered with mercy. There is always a way of escape for those who put their trust in God. Verses 23 through 26 that we just read together give a brief description of this destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're few words, but they describe a terrible, distressing, absolutely awful destruction of these cities and the whole valley where they were located. Sulfur, like fire, falling from heaven like rain, 
killing all the inhabitants with an intense heat and burning that cannot be extinguished. Every living person, including children, are killed. Even the ground is scorched so that all vegetation is destroyed. It's horrible, like when a forest fire burns through a community, leaving everything behind in ashes and barren trash. Total destruction. Lot's wife did not want to give up her life of comfort and indulgence in that city. And as she fled, she looked back with regret and longing. At least that's what is implied in the words that are used when she said she looked back with longing at the city where she had known so many pleasures of life. And in her selfish desires, she was caught up in the destruction of sulfur and fire, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. A horrible end to a life focused on the wrong desires of life. And I know many people read or hear this story and they ask, what kind of a God could be so cruel in destroying four cities of the valley in such a horrible and painful way? How could God justify such terrible punishment, even if the wickedness of the city and those people were bad? This seems like cruel and inhumane kind of punishment. What we need to remember is that sin is a terminal disease that destroys who we were created to be, and it always ends in death. Last week we saw how important it is to understand this nature of our human sin. Sin is not just breaking a few of God's moral laws. It is not just doing something wrong once in a while. Sin is a rebellion against God and a rejection of what he has created us to be, creatures in the image of God. Sin is the most serious thing man will ever have to deal with. It is a spiritual virus that invades our whole being and corrupts us from the core into our whole life. It's a deadly disease that infects every part of us, our body, our mind, our emotions, our relationships, our motives. Absolutely everything is corrupted by sin. It's a terminal disease that destroys who we were supposed to be as human beings. And we don't have the strength in ourselves to cure this disease. So God's judgment and punishment of sin is always fair 
and appropriate because of our rebellion against him. It's a fatal disease, and the only possible result is death. The wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus came. He took on himself the sins of the whole world, and he died for those sins. He died in order to provide a cure for those sins of people who put their trust in him. Sin requires death, and Jesus died in our place. So we must understand that God is holy, and the only cure for sin is death. So when God judges and punishes people for their sins, he is justified in eradicating the fatal disease of rebellion against a holy God. His judgment is always fair and justified. God's judgment is fair and appropriate and timely. But it is also always tempered with mercy. Always tempered with mercy. We read in verses 27 and 28 how Abraham returned to the hilltop where he had interceded for his nephew Lot. And from that vantage point near Hebron, he could look down onto the Dead Sea and to this valley where Sodom and Gomorrah were located. And he could see the smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. He witnessed God's eradication of the sinful people of Sodom and Gomorrah. What he did not see however, was Lot and his family walking out of the smoke and the fire and escaping from the destruction. He could not see if Lot was spared or not. But verse 29 gives us the principle of God's judgment tempered by mercy. God destroyed the cities of the valley according to his justice. But he also remembered Abraham's prayer, and he rescued Lot from the destruction. God's judgment is always tempered with mercy. He always provides a way of escape for those who trust him. We need to have this settled, this principle. Abraham is learning this about God. God's judgment and punishment of sinful people are always fair and equitable, but he always provides a way of escape for those who trust in him. Jesus himself underlined and emphasized the importance of this judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. When he was sending out the apostles to preach the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom of God, he told them there will be some cities 
that will not accept your message, and they will reject it. And Jesus told them, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the last judgment than it will be for those cities who reject the gospel of God. We in this country of America, where we can hear the gospel preached on radio, television, in churches around the country, we have heard the gospel. And for those who reject that plan of escape, it will be worse for you in the judgment than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah. Do not underestimate God's judgment. We read the end of this story by looking at Lot's reaction to it. Lot is kind of an anti-hero in this story of Abraham and his journey of faith. Lot followed a journey of unfaith. His story is tragic and sad. He ends up living in fear for his life in a cave. And his own daughters commit incest with him to carry on the family line. We read the story of Lot through verses 30 through 38 and the end of this chapter. But let me just quickly trace Lot's journey of unfaith. First of all, remember, Abraham entered in the land and he built an altar and he prayed to God. Lot never built an altar and he never worshiped God in submission to him. When Lot and Abraham separated, Lot chose the fertile valley of the Jordan River. He never acknowledged God. He never asked God, where is my plan in your purposes and in the covenant relationship with your people? Instead, he looked only at his own selfish needs, and he never acknowledges God in the decisions he makes. Lot, along with Sodom and all the others, were captured by the kings of Mesopotamia, and they were carried, being carried off for life of slavery in the land of Mesopotamia. Abraham went and rescued them. He defeated them, and he brought them all back, and he delivered Lot from this life of slavery. But Lot never said thank you. You can read the story. He's silent. His life, his herds, his wealth, his family, all rescued. And he never expresses gratitude to Abraham or to God. And finally, he lives in an attached way, involved in the very life of the city of Sodom, because he so treasured the sinful pleasures of Sodom more than he treasured a relationship with God. That was his final step of unfaith. 
an attachment to the sinful culture of Sodom. You know, Sodom was known for its life of immorality, especially the sin of homosexuality. But the sins of Sodom were much deeper than that. As Pastor West pointed out last week, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel understood the sins of Sodom to be gluttony, life of ease and comfort, lack of compassion for the needs of others, and self-reliance. Ezekiel chapter 16 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Now, I believe that the root sin of Sodom can be identified with the desires of the flesh that are described in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. It reads, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. <clears throat> but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. <clears throat> now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, even envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, <coughs> as I warned you before, that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's clear there's a battle in our soul, a battle of desires. St. Augustine stated it very clearly. He said, there can be only two basic loves. The love of God unto the forgetfulness of self, or the love of self unto the forgetfulness of God. The battle in our souls is a battle of desires. On the one hand, we desire the blessings of life. We want this life to go well. We, it, this includes a desire to be loved, the desire to experience meaning and significance, the desire for pleasures with family and friends, and the desire for success. <clears throat> but Jesus taught that the core longing of our heart should be the desire to know God to experience his power and love, to rest in his purposes for us. That is how we were created. 
That is the primary desire that Paul expressed when he said, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die would be gain. My one goal, he said, is that I might gain Christ, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering so that I might attain to the resurrected life with him for eternity. We all want comfort. We all want things to work well. We want health. We want to experience the pleasures of life. But these are second-place desires. And when we put them first, we lose everything. C.S. Lewis said it this way, You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. Lot, his wife, and two daughters were so attached to the second-place pleasures of life that they could hardly tear themselves away from it when the destruction was about to fall on the city of Sodom. Lot's attachment to the pleasures of life almost cost him his life. And because of his unfaith in God, he ended his life in fear and infamy. Notice the consequences of his path of unfaith. Verse 30, the angels had told Lot he could go to the small village of Zoar, and he would be safe there. They did not destroy this small town, even though it was one of the five cities of the valley. It was God's mercy in action to save it. But Lot did not trust God and his promise. He says he was afraid to live in Zoar, and so he fled to the hills and lived in fear in a cave. Lot, who once was so wealthy that the land could not support him and Abraham together with all their herds and their cattle. He lived in comfort and ease in the city of Sodom. He owned his own house there, but now he is reduced to a life of fear and isolation and poverty. A life seeking the pleasures and the comforts and successes of life will never bring you fulfillment and satisfaction. Life's unfaith, Lot's unfaith brought him to a place of fear and poverty and isolation, and it also ruined his legacy and assured his exclusion from the covenant relationship with God. You see, Lot's two daughters were with him, living in this cave in the hills. Believe me, this is not a happy family group. Lot has lost everything, including his wife in the total destruction of Sodom. 
He is suffering deep grief and loss. His two daughters as well are drowning in sorrow. They have lost the comforts of their privileged life, but they also have lost the fiancés that they were engaged to marry. Now, they were young women, but they now have no possibilities for marriage. There were no men around to speak for them and to marry them, and as a result, they had lost any hope for the future. Their big desire was to have children and leave a family legacy. That was the greatest desire of most women of this time and this culture, and their prospects were zero. And so these two daughters make a plan that follows the example of unfaith of their father, Lot. They do not consider God. They do not put their trust in God. They think only of their own desires and how they in their own strength might find a solution to have a family. You see, in their perspective, they had no choice. But let me suggest to, to, to you that there was an alternative to their problem. They lived in a cave in the hills looking down on the valley of Sodom that has just been eradicated. And on the top of those very hills is the place where Abraham had interceded for the life of his son, nephew, Lot. And from the top of that ridge, he could look out and see the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah. So this cave where they were living was not that far from where Abraham was living in wealth and security. So Lot and his daughters could have returned to Abraham, where they would have found refuge and welcome. But Abraham could see from his vantage point all that had happened in the valley. And he never saw Lot and his daughters make any effort to return to the tents of wealth and security with Abraham. He lived in fear and self-reliance. Lot and his daughters could not see beyond their own immediate selfish needs, and they never considered returning to Abraham or to God. And so the two daughters devise a plan to have children by an incestuous relationship with their father. Now incest, even in those pagan cultures, was not an acceptable practice. But in desperation, the daughters get their father drunk and then sleep with him and become pregnant with his child. Both of them do this unthinkable thing one night after the other. And the result is that each daughter had a son, and each son became the father of a tribe of people. One son was Moab. And he is the father of the Moabites. And the other son was Ben-Ami. And he became the father of the Ammonites. Now, any Jewish person reading this text would know immediately 
The Moabites and the Ammonites grew and inhabited the land south and east of the Dead Sea. Yes, in fact, they replaced the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Israel, under Moses and then Joshua, came out of Egypt and they were ready to enter the land of Canaan, the Moabites and the Ammonites refused to let the children of Israel pass through their land. In fact, the Moabites especially fought against Israel. And there was even a period of time when they enslaved part of the people of Israel in their own culture. However, you will also recall a later story that involves Naomi and her husband Elimelech. It was a famine period in the land of Israel. But they left, because of this famine, they left the land and went down to Moab to live. Elimelech died, and so did Naomi's two sons, who had married women from Moab. The wife of one of the sons was named Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite widow and she remained faithful to Naomi. She returned to Israel with Naomi, converted to worship of Yahweh God, and eventually married a man of Israel named Boaz. Boaz and Ruth were the great-great-grandparents of King David, and it was through the lineage of King David that Jesus Christ was born centuries later. Ruth, a Moabitess, married into the lineage ancestry of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Even out of the terrible legacy of the family of Lot, God in his mercy and grace provides place for one of the Moabites to participate in his plan of redemption accomplished through Jesus Christ. So what do we learn from this story? The story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's response of unfaith. First of all, God's justice is always fair and equitable. His punishment is always appropriate and timely. Second, God's justice is always tempered with mercy. He always provides a way of escape for those who trust him. But we must respond to his justice and mercy with acts of faith. Faith is like a young plant, and it needs to be nurtured in our soul. Yes, it is trusting God, but it can become weak by the choices that we make every day. We can choose to satisfy our own selfish desires and seek our own pleasure and comfort and success and self-reliance, or we can choose to depend on God 
and rest in His provisions for our eternal life. Let me repeat what St. Augustine said. It's on the screen. There can be only two basic loves. The love of God under the forgetfulness of self, or the love of self under the forgetfulness of God. This week is the week for Thanksgiving. So let me remind you of Lot's unfaith when he refused to give thanks for God's protection and deliverance in his life. When Abraham rescued Lot from the kings of Mesopotamia, he faced a life certainly of slavery under them, but he never says thank you. You see, gratitude, saying thank you to God, is an act of faith because it's saying to God, I need you. What you have given me, I couldn't provide for myself. I am not self-reliant. I need God's provision and protection and guidance in my life. And I recognize and I thank you for your mercy and grace to me. So when we say thank you to God, we are humbly admitting our dependence on Him. We're saying that without Him and His grace, we would be lost. We would not know peace or hope in this world. Nurture faith in your life. This next week, after weeks of discussion and prayer with the pastoral staff, I'm going to be taking some weeks of sabbatical rest. This is not a time when I am going to seek comfort and ease. In fact, I am going to devote myself to the nurturing of faith in my heart and relationship with God, to find ways to depend on Him, to make sacrifices that mean I submit to His will and His plan for my life so that I can grow deeper in my faith and trust of Jesus Christ. I invite you to also make this holiday season a time not of unfaith, but of faith. Heavenly Father, we choose today to trust you, to not turn our backs on you, to not ignore you, but to renew our dependence upon you, realizing that without you, we can do nothing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.